This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. If you're ready to have your reality redefined, then come on inside, hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, come warm yourself by the fire. You are among friends. If you're into time travel, and I know I am, or perhaps you're an amateur sleuth of the JFK assassination, uh, then you'll enjoy what's coming up. Adrian Biasini is a, a student of history and the author of Conspiracy to Murder. It's a suspense novel, a what-if story, if you will, and the character uh, travels back in time to prevent the assassination of JFK, uh, and then it explores how the world would be different had Kennedy lived. It's a great premise. And um, Adrian and I will discuss uh, the assassination itself. He's a, uh, a, uh, a JFK... Um, file, if you will. Uh, that, that's mere moments away. But please, in the meantime, visit the live events page at strangeplanet.ca. My next live event, fast approaching. It's called The Bilderbergs, featuring Daniel Estulin, Sunday, April the 17th at the University of Toronto. And you can order tickets online in the live events page at strangeplanet.ca or in store at Conspiracy Culture, 1344 Bloor Street West, uh, 1344 Bloor Street West or by phone 416-916-1696 that's Conspiracy Culture 416-916-1696 uh, or online conspiracyculture.com that's The Bilderbergs featuring Daniel Estulin Sunday, April the 17th at the University of Toronto hope to see you there okay, this is really cool uh, as a premise and I, I, I love this whole what-if genre in fact, a couple of months ago on Coast to Coast I interviewed an author who wrote a book about time travel and saving John Lennon it was called Imagine this is sort of the same idea but this book involves time travel and saving John F. Kennedy and again, imagining how the world would be different had Kennedy lived again, it's uh, Adrian Biasini the book is Conspiracy to Murder, a suspense novel, and I should mention the publisher is Black Rose, Black Rose Publishing, and uh, it's available on Amazon.ca and Noble.com, N-O-B-E-L.com. Adrian Biasini, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you? I'm very well. How are you, Richard? Very well. First of all, congratulations. Uh, A a, a 15-year birthing process, and finally here we have 
conspiracy to murder. Now, I'm guessing you're maybe not old enough to really remember the Kennedy assassination, or, or am I wrong? I mean, you look very youthful in your picture. How old were you when Kennedy was shot? Well, I was born uh, in 65, two years ah. after the actual assassination. All right. So this is always fascinating because I was born just a few months after, so obviously I have no recollection. Uh, but I'm always interested in on how uh, younger people find their way uh, and become interested in what many people now, you talk to young people and you ask them, it's the old Dennis Miller joke, where were you when JFK was shot? And they think you mean the Oliver Stone movie. So, I'm sorry. I I would say JFK, I mean, I've always been uh, an historian by nature and it's what I studied. I've always been fascinated with 20th century history. And I remember in, in my high school years, I did three main projects. One was on the Beatles, and of course we know Beatlemania never goes away. The second project I did that I was fascinated with was the story of the Titanic. And, you know, and we all, of course, we all know what James Cameron, another great Canadian, did with that. And, and coincidentally, JFK was another one that I was just baffled with and amazed with, with all, everything that's, that makes up the story of JFK and Camelot, and then then you have this incredible story on how how he died, and it's just one for the ages. And I just remember from from that age, when I was 15, 16, 17 years old, just being mesmerized at that age, even though I I was barely born when when it took place. And so that's where my humble beginnings with the JFK story uh, started. Well, Titanic, uh, Kennedy, and the Beatles, you certainly chose three sort of pivotal moments, not only uh, in in the political history, geopolitical history, uh, but also the cultural history, certainly with the Beatles. Now, uh, we're going to talk about the Kennedy assassination because you are... uh, you know, a, a student of history, a graduate of history. Uh, but I want to just talk about the, the book here for a moment as well, Conspiracy to Murder. It is, it's a suspense novel. And uh, I, I know that uh, you've probably heard this before, but it's interesting, the, um, the parallels, it's almost a, a genre unto itself, like the, the what-if genre. Give people a little sense, a little bit of a sense of the, uh, of, of the book, because it does sort of uh, sound reminiscent of Stephen King's 112263, which involves two of my favorite topics, time travel and Kennedy, and, and so does yours. But explain a little bit about the premise of the book and maybe how yours is different than Stephen King's. Well, when I was looking at the assassination of Kennedy, I looked at the assassination and all the different characters involved in it, and again, I, I just was enthralled by it. And it kind of mirrors... You know his ter- his short term in office and the pomp and the pageantry and everything that was Camelot, and when I looked at that, I looked at so many books that had been written up to that point that all seemed to concentrate basically on his life or his assassination and all the differing theories of those responsible for his death. Up to that point, no one had ever looked at JF at the JFK story differently. My idea was to turn the whole JFK story upside down to t- kind of take it to a different place. And my thought process was simply this. I'm a person that kind of looks at what ifs and everything. So if I look at a movie and I look at an ending, I kind of look at it and say, well, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of cool the way they did that. But what if this took place? And what if that took place? And I kind of looked at the JFK story and I looked at it and said, what about if, if 
one would look at it and take a totally different spin on the ending. What if Kennedy were to have survived the assassination attempt on his life? And I, my, the question I, I posed to myself was, quite frankly, how would the world have been different? How would, it, mm. how would have the world reacted? So my book is based on the revisionist view of the Kennedy assassination, and it supports the theory of a conspiracy involved in the assassination of President Kennedy. And I think what kind of, my book kind of takes the Kennedy story and puts it in two perspectives. Being an historian by nature, I wanted to make, I wanted to educate the reader on the, the different premises and the different theories and the different out, outlooks on how people look at the, at the Kennedy assassination. So I kind of present, I present the reader with all the facts. And when you look at the Kennedy assassination, there are so many things that are happening in the 60s. You know, we're, we're, we're just approaching the zenith of the Cold War. You have the big Russian bear. And, and here you have an, Amer- an American president that takes on the Russian bear full-fledged during the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. And he not only does he fare well, but he, he wins that fight. And, and he forces the Russians to remove their, their missile sites out of Cuba. So, so that's happening. And then you have everything that's happening in the 60s. And, and so my premise was the notion of, you know, turning the story all upside down and, and sort of saying, well, what if, you know, I introduced this character, John, that is doing a, it starts off that he's doing his final project, and he's given the, 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 the project of JFK. Now, he, he's, he's a high school senior, he, he knows nothing about the Kennedy assassination, and he starts to, he starts to educate himself, and he starts to investigate and research, and as he starts researching the JFK assassination, he starts having these visions of things that take place that he has no prior knowledge of, and, and he starts researching the Kennedy assassination. He starts looking at all the foreign policy that was taking place around Kennedy at the time, and, and, and all of a sudden he comes to the startling realization that Kennedy was assassinated in his own country, and, and that's quite a turning point for this character because he's like, you know, here we have a president who was beloved by everybody in this country and, and abroad in the whole world, and, and here he is assassinated in his own country. So John comes to that startling realization, and, and then he starts going, and he's, he's able to, to, to see these visions. And in short order, these visions start becoming more and more vibrant, and they start becoming more so obvious to him. And then from, from visions, he's able... He, he now finds a turning point in his life when he is envisioning in his mind that portion of the Kennedy assassination where when Kennedy was assassinated and, and he's in Parkman Hospital and the Secret Service wanted to remove the body from Washington, from from Dallas and bring it to Washington and the fight that took place in there and all of a sudden he makes a move and somebody, one of the characters that he's now looking at him, witnessing, they all of a sudden can see him, and he realizes that he's transcended time. And, and now knowing this, he sort of comes to the realization and makes a decision that he wants to try and prevent the assassination from taking place. So, right, so he travels back in time and, and literally changes uh, the course of history. Uh, let right. me just remind listeners, Adrian Biasini is uh, with us, and uh, the book, it's a suspense novel, Conspiracy to Murder, but it's historical fiction, all, all of the 
I know the characters associated with the, the actual events surrounding uh, Kennedy's uh, presidency and ultimately his, his death are, are really in place. Uh, but then, sort of as an overlay, we have these, uh, the, these interesting fictional characters, including, as you mentioned, Adrian John, this high school senior who stumbles onto the facts and surrounding the Kennedy assassination and is able to, as you say, transcend time and space. Now, so I, I, I let off asking you about the, the parallels between uh, this. I mean, this is 15 years in the making. You probably started this book before Stephen King started uh, 11-22-63. But that book also involves time travel and, and, uh, and the Kennedy assassination. Um, what, do you, what do you think of the parallels? Well, I, I, my, my first reaction, quite honestly, I started writing my book in 2001. I, I, I had a car accident. I was home for several months, and I just started putting pen to paper. So I started my research and, and my thought process back in 2001, um, and, and again, it's taken me 15 years. But the parallels between our books are obviously that we, have, we both have characters that are that travel into time to, to ostensibly try and prevent the assassination of, of John F. Kennedy. In both cases, they are su- successful in doing so. Where our books differ in is that in, in Mr. King's novel, his novel relies on the premise that Oswald was the lone assassin. Right. And that the killing of Oswald would, would ultimately prevent the assassination of President Kennedy. And as his story unfolds, the saving of President Kennedy leads to cataclysmic world events, mm-hmm. including earthquakes and, and, as he puts it, nuclear fallout. Whereas mine, my book is different in that I take a conspiratorial sort of outlay on, on what my, my book is based on the premise that Oswald wasn't the lone assassin and that it was part of a much bigger conspiracy. So when my character goes back in time, he's not there to, to, to simply stop Oswald. He's there to stop what I describe as a team of, of assassins that are there to, to, to assassinate President Kennedy. So that's where, that's where there's a bit of a difference in terms of where my book goes. Exactly. Uh, and very quickly, as we head into a break, um, I, I was reading 11 uh, I was in Los Angeles, and I was about to interview James DiEugenio, uh, for an episode for the TV show on the Kennedy assassination. And Eugenio is, is one of the great assassination researchers. He came in, f- immediately saw the book on my nightstand and said, that's propaganda! <laughs> and uh, I think conspiracy, uh, the people that, that, uh, that do look at, at, at the conspiratorial aspects of the Kennedy assassination will prefer uh, your book, Conspiracy to Murder, to, uh, to um, Stephen King's, if I may say so, because I think in many respects... His was a bit of a cop-out. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. Adrian Biasini, Conspiracy to Murder, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Adrian Biasini, Conspiracy to Murder. It's a suspense novel, and uh, it involves time travel, uh, the, the, the actual uh, characters involved in the Kennedy assassination, so it has that historical backdrop. Uh, but where, again, uh, we were discussing this before the break, Adrian, where yours differs from... Uh, Stephen King's 112263 uh is that 
that uh, King sort of subscribes, obviously, to the orthodox narrative, that is, that Oswald acted alone and um, that his character in his book goes back, prevents the assassination, and it causes uh, catastrophic events, which, you know, we it's the old grandfather paradox, which is one of the issues revol- revolving around time travel. You never know, you know, one little... One little um, incident, when you go back and you, you uh, interfere with, uh, with the timeline, you could cause you know, a major catastrophe. Uh, but, but your character, John, saves, saves Kennedy. And uh, this is sort of the, the what if and how the world would be different. But let's, let's talk about the Kennedy assassination itself. And uh, again, the fact that, that your uh, view is that Oswald did not act alone. Um, at what point in your... In your research as a, as a student of history, did you sort of uh, arrive at that conclusion, that, that this was a conspiracy, that Oswald was not the lone gunman? Well, I, you know, I, I think if someone takes a look at the Kennedy assassination really carefully, I, ju- I just think it's so obvious that the, the, the party line that's being brought forth by the Warren Commission is there are just there are just too many anomalies. There are just too many strange occurrences. There's just too many coincidences that one can summarize. They, they just don't add up. There's, and, and there are so many characters that are involved in the, in, in the Kennedy assassination. If one really studies it, it is so intricate, and there are so many, so many variables involved that unless you're a student of it and you really study it, you wouldn't realize it. If someone just looks at the Kennedy assassination from face value, as I did when I was first looking at it, it, it just seemed at first very obvious. Here you have an, an, a, a president who was assassinated in Dallas. They quickly converged. They, they arrested the person that was responsible. Unfortunately, he was, he was assassinated himself. But, you know, Lyndon Bain John's uh, Lyndon Bain Johnson was sworn as a, as president right away, just to 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 carry things and 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 make it seem like things were running smoothly, and everything went as it was. And they here you had a Warren Commission that was put forth by the government. It was it went on and was released almost to the day of the assassination. So it just seemed like it was thousands of pages. They looked through every what appeared to be every nook and cranny, and here one would say, hey, it's all. Well done. They they did the investigation. They did the due process, and and um, it was delivered in less than a year later. And and um, Bob's your uncle. But when one really looks at it carefully, there's it's just it, it's not black and white as it would seem. And and when I started researching my book, and I really delved deep into all the different portions and all the different characters and everything that made up the, the Candy assassination. It almost became so much easier for me to write my book because, A, there was just nonstop material to look at, and, B, there was just so many characters and so many things that took place. It was just incredible. It was almost difficult to try and keep it to the, the under 300 pages that I did when, when you added everything because there there's just so much that this subject covers. Uh, it- I'd be interested in your take on this. It seems to me that uh, Kennedy was really the moment he arrived in the Oval Office, uh, his fate his fate was sealed, uh, because uh, you know his experiences in as a senator uh, uh, traveling around Southeast Asia, 
he, he formed certain opinions about American intervention, uh, gunboat diplomacy around the world, uh, and obviously was not, uh, he was certainly not, uh, you know, I don't believe soft on communism, but he, he was obviously wanting to, to, to make a more conciliatory approach. Uh, and yet he was surrounded by uh, hawks uh, everywhere. Uh, it was really uh, a national security state. And uh, he was like a sacrificial lamb and walked into this. I think, I think the moment he was elected and arrived and, at the White House and was sworn in, his fate was sealed. How do you feel? I totally agree with you, Richard. I mean, I, you know, here, here, here's the thing is that there were so many things going on before Kennedy even came into power. You had, uh, you had Cuba that's a few hundred miles away from the border of the U.S. And again, you know, we're, we're, you have to put yourself in that mindset of we're in the 60s, we're approaching the height of the Cold War, and, and here you ha- as soon as he comes into office, the first thing that happens is, is you have a Bay of Pigs in, in insurgents in Cuba to try and, and oust uh, Fidel Castro, and it goes terribly wrong. Um, it was the onset of it was was put together during the Eisenhower administration. And when Kennedy came into power, he basically was almost forced to rubber stamp something that he didn't formulate himself. But his advisors and had told him it's in the works, everything's in order, it has to go, you have to just you can't stop this, it's in motion and and it's a disaster. And within a hundred days of coming into power, Kennedy was livid. He was very unhappy with the way it turned out. It was a total disaster. America tried to distance itself in trying to make it look like they had nothing to do with it, but in short order, they were forced to, uh, Kennedy was forced to admit their involvement in it, and he was livid. He was very upset with the fact that he was put in that position uh, right from from the get-go. So yeah, you're absolutely right, Richard. He he had a lot of variables put on him that that were out of his control as soon as he stepped into office. Let's talk about Oswald for a moment, because very interesting character, and I think the whole key to this is to understand who Oswald was. Here he is, uh, you know, had a top security clearance at Atsugi Air Force Base in Japan. Suddenly, he, he, uh, they find a way to get him out. I, I guess he, he supposedly charged with throwing a, uh, dumping a beer over a superior's head or something, which was kind of a convenient way to, to get him out and then smuggle him into the Soviet Union. And a lot of people don't realize in 1959 there was a, a concerted effort to infiltrate the Soviet Union with, with spies, American spies. Uh, Oswald wasn't the only one uh, who arrived. He, he went to Belarus, of course, but there were others. And uh, it's, it's, it's interesting, the, the timing, of course. Here he is, uh, uh, um, an expert in, in, in radar and so forth. And um, Atsugi was the home of the U-2 spy plane. And while Oswald is over there, of course, Francis Gary Powers and the U-2 is shot down. Uh, it's as if, and they, in order to do that, of course, because it was a fast plane, it flew very high, they couldn't get the Russian interceptors up there in time, it's like they had the codes. And I'm wondering your thoughts on the idea that Oswald was sent over there to leak those codes to the Soviets, shoot down the U-2, cause an international incident, and what happened as a result of that was this... This planned meeting uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union under Eisenhower, uh, which may have resulted in a, some sort of a detente, certainly a thawing in relations during the Cold War, uh, because Francis, Gary Francis Powers was shot down, it scuttled that meeting, and that in itself changed the course of history. Do you think 
Oswald. That's why he was sent to the Soviet Union for that express purpose on the on the on the on the um, sort of at the behest of the military industrial complex who didn't want detente. You make a really good point. I, I think it's I think it's quite conceivable that that was in fact the case. So here, I mean, here you have a person that uh, six days after his seventeenth birthday. In 1956, he enlists in, in the Marines, and he was quickly called a Scott uh, Oswaldkovich because of his open apparent support of communism. And it didn't, but this didn't prevent the Marine Corps from giving him unusual, uh, the unusual seven-year-old soldier radar training, security clearance, as you say. Yet, by in 19, on February 25th, 1959, Oswald was given a Russian language test by Marines. Seven months later, he was on his way to defect to the Soviet, Soviet Union after several strange circumstances re- resulted in his rapidly obtaining a password discharge. There were unscheduled flights. And, and the KGB openly suspected Oswald as being a false defector sent to spy for the U.S. Um, and, and you're right, the, the U.S. secretly had a spy program at the time. Um, but apparently the Soviets played along by encouraging, encouraging uh, Oswald to stay. And um, at the time, he was living with, with his girlfriend, Marina, and they ma- he, he met and he married her. And, and yet her uncle, her, her uncle was a top official in Minsk. And in June of 1962, despite his earlier threat to a U.S. Uh, a US embassy official, that he might give the Russians U.S. military secrets, Oswald was allowed by both governments to easily return to the U.S. with his uh, new wife and their daughter in tow. He was even given a loan, I think it was by the U.S. State Department, to repatriate him. I mean, I, I would think that would be unprecedented. Here you have a defector threatening, as you say, to give secrets to the Soviets, uh, which is uh, treason. I mean, that's uh, they execute people for that. Uh, ask the Rosenbergs. Uh, and yet he is uh, repatriated into the United States, given a loan to do so. And then he finds himself, curiously, uh, you know, this um, sort of this strange loner. Uh, he's, he's kind of hanging around some pretty interesting circles. White Russians in Dallas, oil barons, uh, Michael and Ruth Payne, of course, who were uh, uh, very highly placed at Bell Helicopter and... Uh, they certainly had a lot to lose when uh, Kennedy wanted to uh, to de-escalate American involvement in, in Vietnam. Uh, talk about the military-industrial complex. I mean, Bell, t- uh, Bell Helicopters uh, probably took the biggest hit as a result of that. So what do you make of the the, uh, uh, the friendship between Lee Harvey Oswald and, and Michael and Ruth Payne? You know, it's a, that's an interesting question. It, it's curious. I mean... It, uh, these were Quakers, and perhaps they were just being extra nice to somebody who was very shy and he had a young family. I don't know if we'll ever know the, the truth. I mean, Oswald is a very, very strange and interesting character. I mean, he's, he's, he's seen with, you know, he's, he's, he's part of the chapter of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee. He was often seen in friendly company with former Civil Air Patrol Commander David Ferry. Um, they were both seen with private detective Guy Bannister in Bannister's office at the heart of the U.S. intelligence community in New Orleans. And, 
and and both Ferry and Bannister, uh, Bannister was a former FBI agent, were rabidly anti-communist and anti-Castro. So he's 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 sort of in company with some very strange individuals, and 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 again, Oswald is. What's strange is he is perhaps the most unlikely of assassins. You know, it's just he's a very, very strange individual. In January of 1963, under the alias of Alex Sedell, he orders two guns through mail order. And, of course, you know, they say the rest is history. One of those guns was was apparently, they claim, was used to assassinate President Kennedy uh, in a short order, but Oswald is a very strange individual. And but the but what has to be noted is, in the in the short few hours after his arrest, at every point, and if you listen to any transcript of his interviews with police and, and his interviews with reporters, he from every point from day one he always exclaimed his innocence. He always said he was a patsy. He always proclaimed that he was totally innocent. All right, Adrian, i got to break in here. I, apologies, but we'll, uh, we'll take a quick time out and come back and discuss. I'd like to, to talk a few minutes about the ordering of that murder weapon from Klein's Sporting Goods Store in Chicago. I mean, that, that alone we could, we could discuss for two hours. Uh, and I think, you know, the, 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 the curious circumstances surrounding the ordering of the weapon would, would lead many to conclude he couldn't have been the, uh, the lone assassin. Conspiracy to Murder is the book, a suspense novel. We'll discuss further with Adrian Biasini right here on The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. This is no place for the naive or the faint-hearted. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth will set you free, but first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Adrian Biasini. He is a uh, student of history and a... uh, a new author. Uh, the book is called Conspiracy to Murder. It's a suspense novel, and uh, the comparisons have been uh, made to uh, Stephen King's sort of what-if book, which involved time travel and the Kennedy assassination, of course, eleven twenty-two sixty-three. That's now a television series, is it not, Adrian? That's correct. It yeah. stars uh, James Frankel. It's actually a very good series. But yours is a little different, as we pointed out, in that um, you... Uh, and and Stephen King uh, took some heat uh, from those. Uh, let's face it; the majority of us uh, believe that uh, do not believe that um, that Oswald acted alone, or that some of us don't believe he was involved at all. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, Stephen King sort of took the orthodox um, uh, narrative that Oswald was responsible. So the the sort of the gist of his book is this time traveler goes back and prevents Oswald uh, from from killing Kennedy. Uh, you take a more conspiratorial view. And uh, I, I wanted to touch very briefly, this is a short segment, but you mentioned the ordering of the murder weapon. And it's interesting, uh, you know, today we take it for granted that if you can order through Amazon uh, and in not too distant future, they'll be delivered by drone. Uh, but back in 19, uh, you know, 63, when he ordered supposedly a murder weapon from a, de- a department store in Chicago. Think about that. If you're going to kill somebody, why would you leave a paper trail? And then how would it work that you would have a, a post office box under the name of Alex Heidel uh, using an alias? I mean, he would ha- you'd have to provide, you would have to provide um, um, 
identification. I mean, you can't order a, a weapon through the mail using an alias unless, you know, you've got the identification. There's just so many, and, it, and, it, and, the, and the order was processed at lightning speed, like within 24 hours. Think of that, in 1963. It doesn't happen. I, I totally agree with you. And to me, if, in, my humble, in my humble opinion, and I've always thought this, I think this is just further proof of something wrong in the state of Denmark. I mean, I think this was done in order to plant evidence against him so that there was a paper trail. I mean, putting your name down as Alex Heidel, in my mind, is almost done on purpose in order to make it look like you're trying to get people off track of, of associating the purchase of you but in my mind you're absolutely right it was it's more than curious that something is being ordered in that fashion it arrives so quickly and there's such a paper trail that's left and I and I guess and I think that in my mind that supports the fact that that he was set up and and was made to look like he was the lone assassin to me it's just it's just a textbook textbook of how things are done and in that time to make it look like and have everything point back to him. Yeah, if you look at no other aspect of the Kennedy assassination, uh, I would encourage people just to look at the ordering of the uh, Manlicher Carcano, the humanitarian uh, weapon, uh, through Klein's uh, department store in Chicago. Uh, and um, just look at how quickly that order was processed and so forth, and then consider... You know, you you uh, you order it under an alias, and then you show up at the uh, the post office to pick up your package, and uh, what they don't ask for identification. So Lee Harvey Oswald claims to be Alex Heidel, and they just give him a weapon. <laughs> and if you're going to kill somebody, are you really going to order it through the mail? I mean, come on, it just defies all credulity. And and you know, let's not lose sight of the fact of the weapon that was ordered. I mean, if you're going to assassinate a president. Are you going to be using such, such a, an insufficient piece of hardware like that, like that rifle? It just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't support. It, it, one looking at this is, is would come to the conclusion that weapon isn't even capable of doing what they're suggesting he did in such a short order of time. No, true enough. Uh, true enough. And then there's the whole idea that uh, you take the weapon to the Texas Book Depository, and it's unassembled. Uh, so now you've got to put it back together. And I don't know if anyone's fired a weapon before, but you don't just put a, uh, a, a scope on a weapon and just hope that you've got it lined up. I mean, you have to field test it. You put the scope on. Uh, and then you shoot at your target, and you go, oh, I need to adjust it. I need, you know, I need, it's, it's lower, it's higher, it's to the left, it's, it's askew. Uh, you don't just go to the, <laughs> the murder scene, the crime scene, uh, throw on the, on, on the scope, and everything works perfectly. I mean, there again, it just defies all credulity. I totally agree with you. And, and, and you know, there's, eyewitness there's a lot of eyewitness testimony that co-workers saw Oswald in the lunchroom literally seconds after he was supposedly, had supposedly shot President Kennedy. And, and this is shown in, in, in the Oliver Stone movie, JFK, because it bears witness. Uh, you have an eyewitness that saw Oswald in the lunchroom, was not sweating, did not look to be in any sort of 
distress, one would, one would think that someone who has just assassinated the, the, the president would have to run down six, six floors and then to be in that condition where he's showing absolutely no stress or anything it just defies logic. Well, not only was he fluent in Russian and he was an incredible marksman, apparently he was a world-class sprinter. All right, we'll take another time out, come back. Uh, one segment remains with Adrian Biasini, Conspiracy to Murder, a suspense novel. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Take a look around. What do you really see? This is where you can tell all about it. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Adrian Biasini is uh, with us, and the book is Conspiracy to Murder, a suspense novel. Uh, and if you're interested in sort of the what-if genre, imagine... Uh, and also time travel. There's an aspect of time travel here. Uh, imagine you know going back in in time and preventing the assassination of Kennedy. Let me ask you how I mean how do you think the world would be different uh, had Kennedy uh, been saved from the assassin's bullet? My, my novel takes some time and it, and it does give some interesting tidbits as to how how history would have changed. But in, in my humble estimation, I, I think it's quite conceivable that Kennedy would have obviously would have finished his first term and would have probably been successful for a second term of office. And, and Kennedy had a lot of projects and a lot of policies that he was putting into place. He, he was a proponent of civil rights. Um, he, you know, it's, it's very clear that he made it clear that his pledge to, to put a man on the, on the moon and bring him back safely to Earth, and, and true to his form, he, he made the promise that it was going to happen before decades end, and, and, he, and he made good, albeit he wasn't there to witness it, but that promise came into fruition. And I truly believe that had John F. Kennedy lived, the world would have been different. There's, there's ample evidence that shows that he did not support America's full-fledged entry into Vietnam. There are memorandums that, that prove that he was already putting policies that he was going to put policies in place to have American troops withdraw from Vietnam much earlier. And one can only imagine the difference that that would have had in the war. Had America started withdrawing their troops earlier than they did, Vietnam could have ended years earlier, and we can only imagine how many lives would have been saved had that been the case. And, and I truly believe that that would have been the case had Kennedy survived and, and and this is part of the the reason why I wrote this book is I really I really feel that the pro, the biggest issue for me with the Kennedy assassination is is that there's never been any sense of closure to the Kennedy assassination there's never been someone that's come forth and said this is what happened this is what took place and it's just a shame that Kennedy wasn't able to live his dream and and do what he what he set forth to do and that's what my book does. It, it gives the reader for the first time the opportunity to see what would have happened had Kennedy lived. But my book relies and, and concentrates solely on the Kennedy situation and what happens after he gets saved. And I think it's, 
it devotes two or three chapters just on that. And, and, and people that have read the book just love the fact that it gives them an opportunity to look at how the world would have been different had uh, Mr. Kennedy survived. Uh, and uh, we don't want to give away the ending, so I don't want people to, 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 uh, to know, unless they, they read the book, how uh, your character, John, is, is able to, uh, to prevent the assassination. That's kind of an interesting, <laughs> an interesting um, angle as well in the book. But let, let me ask you about the, the, the time travel, travel aspect. Um, now, in, in the Stephen King uh, novel, you know, he, he, there's this sort of strange portal that his character discovers that allows him to travel back in time. Now, what's going on with, with, with John uh, and, and how he's able to, to transcend time and space? It almost, it almost comes across as if he's some sort of a, a remote viewer because he has these, Im, you know, he has this, these images, these very strong um, prescient dreams, if you will, or images that flash in his head. Uh, talk to me a little bit about that device and how he's able to transcend time and space. When I, when I was thinking about it, I, it, it, it took me a while to come up with the concept. I just didn't want it to look like it was gimmicky. And, but I did my genre in the, uh, the, the affirmation and, and the way he starts in his dreams it starts with visions, and they get more sharper, and they get, they get more vivid. And again, as, as I mentioned, he, he comes to that realization that he's able to actually be in the past, and he realizes. And then he goes back to Dealey Plaza again. And the, re, the way he's able to transcend time, it's almost as if he wills himself back into the past. And in most cases that it happens, he's in such distress and in such emotion that his emotion propels him into the past and his will to go into the past. There's, there's not a portal in itself that brings him there, although there is a light in his, in his room that is more of a signal that he has to go into the past. Right, right. He, he almost strikes me as a, as a remote viewer. Correct. That's correct. Are you interested in time travel? Is that something that you're... I mean, it's interesting. It's more than just a device. I'm, or is it? I'm, I'm asking. Is, is, it, um, is it an area of interest for you, or was it simply a device? I've always, loved, I've always loved the concept of time travel, because time travel allows the, the, the reader or the viewer to, to move into another dimension in time that one could never do. And I remember watching, if you remember the old series time tunnel and there was one episode where where the character was able to transcend time and went back to the titanic and tried to prevent it from 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 going down and i still remember to this day that that one episode had such an effect on me because i thought it was just such a wonderful and incredible not only idea but opportunity for someone to go back and go into a different space and time that they wouldn't normally be able to go to. So when I, you know, when I, when I thought about my book, I just felt it was the perfect opportunity and perfect way for him to do what he had to do, which was to prevent the assassination. Uh, spend a few moments and talk to me about, um, without giving too much away, obviously, um, Oswald not involved, but, in, but to, what, to what extent do you think he was involved. He was a patsy, but what, what role did Oswald play in the assassination? To me, Oswald was a decoy. I, I, I would venture to say I'm even skeptical of, of whether Oswald fired a single shot. In my mind, the Kennedy assassination took place, and it, it was as a result of 
a team of, of, of snipers that were there. And Oswald, to me, was a decoy. He was just exactly as he had said. And if you look at that, that eerie film footage from his capture, and he basically spells it out and says, I'm a patsy. And I think that's exactly what he was. And, and not a patsy in the sense that he was, wasn't intelligent or he was a golfer or something like that. He was an intelligent man. It's just he, got, he found himself in the midst of circumstances that he couldn't get out of because there were so many characters and so many forces at play during the assassination and in its, in its inception that it would have taken a very strong, strong-willed individual to get out of it. And I don't think Oswald had that in him. Is it possible that he thought he was part of a, a sting operation to prevent the assassination? Because there seems to be, I think, some credible evidence that it was Oswald who tipped off authorities and prevented a Kennedy's assassination in Chicago. So if he was going to prevent an assassination in Chicago, why would he be involved in one in Dallas? That's a really good point, but I think what, what one, one has to realize is, and, and again, we, we, get back to, we get back to the notion of the Kennedy assassination and all the intricacies involved, and that's what just mesmerized me when I started researching writing this book, but not many people, I'm not sure how many people are aware of this, but literally days before the assassination, an FBI, a Miami police informant, had had an, a conversation with uh, a person named John Miltier. He was a, a, a right-wing leader, and he basically, on this tape recording, you can see them talking, and Miltier is, is forecasting that Kennedy is going to be shot, and he's, he's incredibly accurate in that it's going to be with a high-powered rifle. And if you listen to this, to this taping, the person is saying, well, how are they going to get away with it? And he's basically saying that it's from the highest level. And, and, and Miltier says, you know, they're going to leave no stone uncovered. And it's just an apocalyptic sort of forecast of what is going to happen days later. And this is just, it's just incredible. So they were aware of, police in Dallas, I believe, were aware of what was, of, of the imminent threat. But the, as one knows, the security arrangements in Dallas at the time were, were not where they should have been. There is some uh, some dispute as to whether the the actual parade route was changed. It is interesting that the mayor of Dallas, uh, Cabell, his brother was, I, I believe, former uh, was what was his brother? It was, he was a FBI, CIA uh, former. I think he had been fired by um, uh, by Kennedy not too long prior. But that's an interesting relationship. Uh, I mean, who else would have the power? to change the parade route if, in fact, the parade route was changed. I'm undecided as to whether that actually took place. Well, what you have to realize is that when Kennedy came into power, he fired then-CIA director Alan Dulles. And he not only did he fire Alan Dulles, but he fired Deputy Director Charles, Charles Cabell. Oh, okay, a, a Deputy Director, that's right. Yes, yeah, so Charles Cabell, coincidentally... Was was the brother of the dep of the mayor of Dallas, so so Earl Cabell, who was mayor of Dallas in 1963. So it's just it's that's just an incredible coincidence. And of course, we all know that Alan Dulles was part of was on the board of the uh, Warren Commission. So you know the the intricacies and the coincidences the coincidences are incredible.
uh, uh, true enough. Uh, and of course, if the parade route was in fact changed last minute, and again, I, there's some discrepancy there and it's a contentious issue. I'm not convinced that the parade route was changed, but the idea is that it was changed last minute in order to allow for sort of perfect triangulation in terms of uh, 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 the assassination so that he could be shot from, from various angles and to, they, they could ensure you know, a fatal shot. You're absolutely correct, Richard. In fact, many, many believe that that parade route was changed, but it was chosen because of the very fact. And I got to tell you, I, I was, I made a point of going to Dili Plaza this past September. So I walked all of Dili Plaza, and I just was looking at the whole route. And I was at the corner of Houston and Elm, and just to see, to actually stand there, and I was actually standing behind the grassy knoll, and to be there in person and to actually see it live in person and see exactly where that parade route traveled, it was that sharp turn from, from Houston and Elm to where he was ultimately shot, it just makes it so slow, and it, it gave any, any snipers that much more of a credible opportunity to be successful in what they wanted to do. And of course, uh, the, the, the Zapruder film, there are frame, a couple of frames missing, and we have eyewitness reports that the, uh, the limousine uh, virtually came to a standstill. It's just stopped, uh, I guess, to allow perhaps, some say, the, uh, you know, the, the final headshot uh, to take place. But uh, uh, yeah, you just <laughs> every aspect of it is just fraught with, with uh, complications that just strain credulity. Um, once again, I want to congratulate you on it's a it's a it's a it's if I can say the word fun and it, you know when we're talking about the murder of a president, but it's just the whole idea of what if and going back and changing history. Um, I think what you've tapped into is really a universal uh, feeling that we have uh, because the idea of time travel going back, we'd all like to go back and undo something. Uh, we all have regret, we all have loss, and that's really universal. That's what you've tapped into. And uh, you know what? I think you could be the guy to uh, to really take this whole what if genre. You know, what if Robert Kennedy had lived? What if Martin Luther King had lived? What if John Lennon had lived? There you go. There's your assignment, Adrian. Richard, you're uh, you're an astute gentleman, and you're absolutely right. I, at the end of the day, I just think the one thing that my book and and it was my goal from its inception. I believe that my book serves to give closure to the fate of John F. Kennedy. It, it, it provides a positive alternative to the events as, per, as first prescribed in history. And more importantly, it allows the reader to, to speculate just how different the world would have been. Indeed. And finally, I think it's an ending that, it's a story that, that has to be told, and, and I, I just think it's a wonderful alternative to a tragedy in history that I wish never happened. All right, thank you very much. I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you for having me. Adrian Biasini, Conspiracy to Murder. Hey, the portal to The Conspiracy Show, the website, is strangeplanet.ca. Uh, that takes you to many, many different uh, places. The radio show, the TV show, the live events page, strangeplanet.ca. Say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth.
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, taxi cab, RV, camper, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. This is The Conspiracy Show. I'm Richard Serrett. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is standing by, our resident paranormal investigator researcher, to discuss angels. Uh, many of you may believe in angels. Uh, some of you may believe you've Uh, had an encounter with an angel, you have a guardian angel, you've been saved by an angel, and so forth. So we'll uh, discuss, well, angels, (laughs) the hierarchy of angels, angels from biblical times right up to the present. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, mere moments away. Just a reminder, there is no HOA tonight, no hangout on air. My producer, Elbert, will be back next week and will resume live streaming the show on YouTube. Uh, Please visit strangeplanet.ca, that's your portal to all of my various projects, including this radio program, uh, The Conspiracy Show, uh, the TV program. Uh, And yes, there will be a season four. There will be brand new episodes airing across Canada on Vision TV. Uh, And uh, the live events page also. Don't forget that at strangeplanet.ca. The live events page. Check out details on my next live event, The Bilderbergs, with special guest Daniel Estulin. He's the author of The True Story of the Bilderbergs. He's coming to town Sunday, April the 17th at the University of Toronto, and you can order tickets online right there at the live events page or in-store at Conspiracy Culture, 1344 Bloor Street West, uh, or by calling 416-916-1696, 416-916-1696, or online, of course, at conspiracyculture.com. The Bilderberg, Sunday, April the 17th, at the University of Toronto. Hope to see you there. Okay, let's learn about angels and how they help us in daily life. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is one of the leading experts in the metaphysical and paranormal fields with 60 books published on a wide range of paranormal, spiritual, and mystical topics, including nine single-volume encyclopedias. Her work is translated into 15 languages, and her current work focuses on interdimensional contact experiences, the afterlife, and spirit communications, psychic skills, dream work for well-being, spiritual growth and development, past and parallel lives, problem hauntings, and investigations of unusual paranormal activity. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? Well, hi, Richard. It's getting time to hit the road this spring, and I'm getting ready for a big trip out to Seattle for several weeks. Very cool. I love the Pacific Northwest. Well, I grew up there, so naturally I'm very fond of it. And I've got some uh, events planned out there, doing some research as well. And I'll be going back in the summertime, too. But from from now on, it's a lot of road trip. 
You know, we were we were trying to figure out what we were going to talk about this week. Obviously, so much going on, but um, we, and we settled on you know sort of dialing it back to an earlier work of yours, calling upon angels, how angels help us in daily life. And I got to me thinking, you know, it must be kind of refreshing for you. Uh, I know angels are a big part of your early childhood, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But um, taking a break, sort of from the. I guess the lower vibrations, if you will, when we're talking about uh, shadow people and jinn and evil spirits and, and hauntings and so forth, which is, you know, a lot of what I call spiritual dirty laundry. Uh, and, and, but getting an opportunity to talk about, obviously, higher vibrational entities like angels must be kind of a nice, it's almost like cleansing your sorbet, or uh, sorry, cleansing your palate with a sorbet in between courses and a meal. That's a good way of putting it, and uh, angels have been very important to me throughout my whole life, and in the course of my work, I've seen them cycle through uh, phases of um, intense popularity, and then um, they kind of, um, you know, fall down into um, a lower prominence, and they come back up again. It seems like whenever people feel that uh, their lives are in need of that spiritual cleansing, uh, they turn their attention to angels. And I have felt angels uh, of increasing significance to people for a number of years now. So um, I think that says something about the times we're in. Well, you mentioned growing up in Seattle. Tell me about your your childhood and your your fascination, your experience experiences with, with angels from a very early age. Yes, uh, I grew up almost like an only child. My uh, one sibling, a sister, is 12 years older than me, and so I spent a good deal of time by myself when I was a kid, and um, of course I had friends and and whatnot, but at home I was playing by myself a lot. And uh, I think that for for me it it caused me to turn inward, and I had a um, you know very rich um, inner life. And angels were part of that. They were uh, some of my experiences when I was young. And I didn't see them. Uh, I actually didn't start seeing a whole lot in the spirit world until I was a little older. But I knew they were around me, and I could hear them. And uh, especially at night when I went to sleep, I felt that there was a circle of them around my bed, and they would sing me to sleep. And uh, oftentimes when I would be by myself uh, or we'd be on a road trip somewhere and I would be in the back seat of the car, um, I would tune into the angels. And I knew they were real, that they were not just um, uh, things that you saw on Christmas cards. And um, uh, that early beginning then developed into uh, a much fuller relationship with the angelic realm as I got older. Um, And... One of the things that really puzzled me when I was young, uh, as I got as I got a little older, however, from that level of childhood, I was this is about when I was five, six, seven years old. Uh, I thought other people had the same experiences, and I was very puzzled that people don't. It's it's not a uniform playing field out there when it comes to the spirit realm and the paranormal, and that also. Um, made me very curious about what was going on. Why Why did I have experiences with angels singing to me and other people did not? And I found that many people didn't even believe in angels. They were something in the Bible uh, that didn't apply to modern times. And um, matters like that just made me want to know why um, reality is different 
for so many people. Now, contrast or compare your angels with the angels that we know from from the Bible, and 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 then we can obviously we can discuss maybe some of the misconceptions about what angels are and what they look like. Uh, but but what what it, first give us a description of your angels, and then we will we'll compare them with the Bible. Uh, well, when um, when I had my first experiences, I considered angels to be very friendly. Uh, it was like they were my companions or guardians, and um, I, I really liked having that sense of of um, presence around me. When I got older and I had some visual experiences of angels, they were pillars of light. I never saw them in um, a form with wings, and I found that to be the case with most experiencers. But again, uh, something that was very benevolent, very helpful. And this is in rather stark contrast to the biblical angel, at least in terms of the beings who interacted with humans, because they were fierce and uh, stern and punishing. Uh, People were rather frightened of angels. Sure. I mean, if you were in the presence of of an angel, an archangel, uh, Michael or Gabriel, I mean, you would collapse on the floor from fear, tremble in fear. Well, absolutely. And and even uh, the Virgin Mary in the New Testament is rather rattled when the angel Gabriel comes to her to announce her pregnancy. Uh, Because back then, people thought that angels just didn't show up to the average person unless God was unhappy with you. And uh, they considered angels to be exalted beings, messengers. Uh, They might have dealings with uh, certain elevated humans, like prophets and uh, important heads of state. But the average person just wasn't going to experience an angel unless they were in trouble with God. And so there are are many cases where angels do come to impart warnings and uh, very stern instructions from God and, and even to do punishing. Uh, there are helpful angels, of course. For example, um, angels uh, appear to Joseph uh, in his dreams and and uh, tell him to take Mary and and Jesus uh, away to um, to avoid persecution. And um, Jacob has his dream of angels going up and down a ladder to heaven, and um, it has to do with uh, his um, his right to. Uh, to land, uh, that this is a a spiritual legacy of his. So there are helpful instances, but by and large, angels are very remote to human beings. They're not around to provide comfort and support and guidance. That concept uh, developed much, much later. Well, yes, certainly you're right. In, in, in In the Bible, we have no inkling that we all have, for example, uh, a, a personal angel that's assigned to us, a guardian angel, or what have you, uh, that's that intervenes. Uh, when did that notion uh, start to take hold in, in in popular culture? That that we all have angels, uh, and they're not these stern, uh, awe-inspiring uh, entities of the Old and New Testament. Well, there is some. Um indication of the concept in the Bible, in Psalms, there's uh, a passage in which uh, God says, I will uh, set my angel in charge of you, uh, with with the idea that uh, this angel is going to be protective and and, uh, a guardian of sorts. Uh, The angel isn't called a a guardian, but uh, the idea is there. 
And <clears throat> it really wasn't until um, much, much later, even on into the 20th century, that we had a significant concept of guardian angels, and uh, that was due largely to a couple of popes. It was Pope Pius XI um, talked about how he had a, a guardian angel who would serve as his diplomat, and that if he was in uh, negotiations with someone or he wanted to persuade someone to a particular point of view, he would consult his guardian angel and have his angel go talk to the guardian angel of the other person or people. And uh, so there would be um, some diplomacy going on in, in the angelic realm, and that's how a lot of things would get sorted out. Now, in earlier centuries, there, uh, there were stories of uh, people and their guardian angel, but um, the idea that the average person could have a guardian angel uh, really is, is mostly a 20th century development. And then Pope Pius XII in 1950 issued an encyclical in which uh, he promoted the idea of guardian angels and that um, it was good to have a relationship with angels and uh, that it was beneficial to one's spiritual life. Uh, however, there was just this, this idea that the guardian angel was a single angel and that... Um, this angel was with a person from birth to death. And uh, one of the popes, and I'm, I'm not sure if it was Pope Pius Twelfth or not, um, made a statement that, well, the average person only has one guardian angel, but important people, whoever they, they might be, didn't say who would be important, could have two guardian angels. And my feeling is from uh, just having been aware of angels around me my whole life and then interviewing many, many people about their experiences is that we have uh, a number, even many angels with us throughout our, our life um, and that some angels do stay with us uh, for the entire course um, and there may be one angel that's a primary angel um, but we also have angels that come and go as we go through different stages in life and we have different needs, different daily life needs, different spiritual needs. All right, we'll pick up on that point when we come back, Rosemary. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is with us discussing her book, Calling Upon Angels. We'll talk about the Christian angelic hierarchy uh, and also get into some of the, the first-hand encounters with angels uh, detailed in her book. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show, my name is Richard Serrett. Don't go away. Question Everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is uh, with us, and um, when did Calling Upon Angels uh, come out, Rosemary? It came out last year, and it's uh, an introductory book to the angelic realm, and it includes stories uh, that I have collected from my interviews over the years, some of my own personal experiences, uh, and uh, how angels uh, intervene with, with people in their daily affairs, how they can be recognized, how we can connect with them. We'll get into some of the first-hand experiences detailed in the book. 
um, uh, including a, a fascinating one with, uh, I believe he was an electrical worker. Uh, an angel saved his life. You identify him as Robert S. But I just want to uh, take a moment to talk about, this is something that fascinates me, the, uh, the angelic hierarchy. Um, because it's, it is rather involved and complicated. I mean, people may not be aware of. It's, it's not just the archangels and then everyone else. There are, there are spheres. Uh, the first sphere, second sphere, third sphere. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the hierarchy. Yes, in, uh, in our popular thought about angels, uh, they are organized into a hierarchy of nine levels. And actually, over the centuries, various mystics have come up with other organizational structures, uh, not limited to, to nine. There might be more or less. But the nine-level one has uh, become uh, part of Christian thought about angels, and that was largely because of St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, in the uh, 13th century, he adopted this um, hierarchy that had been developed much, much earlier by a, uh, a Greek named Pseudo-Dionysius. And uh, this Greek uh, might have also uh, been Assyrian. Uh, there's not too much known about him. But um, it's believed that he lived in around the 5th or 6th century and was a theologian. He's called the Pseudo-Dionysius because um, he was often confused with the Dionysius that was uh, mentioned in the New Testament. But he conceived of this nine-level hierarchy of angels, and uh, it does um, make a lot of sense. Uh, Nine is a number of completion. We have uh, three tiers of three levels each, so it's, it's a neat organization, and they go from the highest, the seraphim, down to the lowest, which is the angel, the being that most people are likely to encounter. And at each level, there is uh, a different um, uh, vibrational level of, of the angelic beings, different duties, different preoccupations, and all of them combined uh, concern the workings of the cosmos, from the affairs of Earth and uh, human beings and everything on the planet uh, up to maintaining the highest vibration of love that emanates from the Godhead. And, and so uh, we would have no dealings, likely, with the first sphere. These are the servants of God. These are, as you mentioned, the seraphim, the cherubim, the thrones. Uh, where do the archangels fit in? Which sphere are they? They are uh, next to the lowest. Uh, the lowest rung on the hierarchy ladder is the angel, and then the archangels, and we consider them to be quite mighty beings. This would be St. Michael, that would be one. Uh, Gabriel would be another, Raphael. Uh, there are other archangels that are named in texts that are outside of the Bible. Uh, and these angels, the archangels, are concerned with the workings of earth and human beings, but on a higher level than than the average angel. Uh, They deal with uh, bigger powers, bigger pictures. Uh, They have a um, greater force and presence, and they have the ability to be in the presence of God. And then when you go up to the highest level, the seraphim, um, who... his name, their name is associated with fire, um, and one interpretation of seraphim is carriers of warmth. They're very fiery beings, and they are of such high vibration that it is said that human beings can't even comprehend their presence. And were they to try to make themselves known to humans, 
they would have to step their energy down tremendously. Mm. And so angels at the very highest level, their influence trickles down through all the different levels uh, until it reaches a vibration that can be absorbed and comprehended by human beings. So the seraphim are uh, concerned with maintaining this uh, unconditional love of God. It's the vibration of creation that God sends out into the cosmos. And below them are the cherubim. These are uh, keepers of knowledge and wisdom. They were also said to be the guardians in um, paradise, in the gar- gar- Garden of Eden. So the, 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 uh, even the archangels are down, as you say, near the, the, the bottom rung, if I can use that an- analogy when we're talking about <laughs> angels, but they are, they are down near the bottom rung. I guess that refers to sort of the vibrational uh, aspect as well, because we can, uh, throughout history, we have uh, had encounters with the archangels, and uh, they can intervene in, in, our, in our lives. Now, the angels that you saw as pillars of light as a child, uh, which... Which order of angels uh, were they? Where are they fitting in in the hierarchy, do you imagine? It's often hard to say because uh, when people have encounters with angels, sometimes the angels will identify themselves. And I have had encounters with the archangel Uriel, um, which is uh, one of the archangels that is not mentioned in the Bible, is mentioned in texts outside of the Bible. Uh, and these beings were um, pillars of light, and their appearance was in response to various needs or situations that I was in. And so I would assume that they would be of the angel realm, you know, the, the lowest order, the uh, beings that are most likely to intervene in the affairs of humans. And even then, Richard, the energy was so intense that uh, and so bright that I could not look directly at them. Uh, I had to turn my face away. The light was just almost blinding in intensity. And it's really amazing if, if you consider that this is the lowest level of um, the angel realm and their energy is so intense that human beings uh, have a hard time being in, in their presence. Exactly. Uh, the book is Calling Upon Angels, How Angels Help Us in Daily Life. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, my guest, and you can order this from her website, visionaryliving.com, visionaryliving.com, Calling Upon Angels. Now, I want to dive in here with a, um, a firsthand uh, experiencer. Uh, Robert S., this electrical worker in Trenton, New Jersey, has uh, an encounter with an angel that, that uh, probably saved his life. Tell me about Robert S. Well, he was uh, working in a mill, and he accidentally grabbed hold of a high-voltage wire. It was well over 400 uh, volts, and uh, you know, that's, that's enough to potentially kill someone. And he could feel this electricity just uh, pounding through his body and this fear that he was going to die and um, you know, immediately sort of sending out a, an unconscious prayer you know, to God, I don't want to die. Um, and uh, as you know, when people grab hold of high-voltage wires, they can't let go. And um, uh, it's very dangerous to try to pull them off the wires because another person could be electrocuted as well. And almost uh, as soon as he said this prayer, he felt a pair of hands uh, grab his body around the waist and pull him free of the wire, and he thought that maybe a co-worker had uh, um, saved his life. But in fact, um, 
there was no person who pulled him off. Uh, something, some force pulled him off the wire, and he had burn marks that resembled uh, the shape of, of hands around his waist. And uh, he believes that an angel of God rescued him that day. Remarkable story. Remarkable. Uh, and there are others in the book. Uh, how about for you personally? Do you, do you feel that uh, you were ever uh, saved from uh, uh, injury or illness by an angel? I've certainly had some close calls in cars uh, on the road that um, the, my ability to avoid a horrendous accident seemed miraculous to me, as though uh, something else was able to control the car for just a split second in order to avoid uh, a serious collision. I have not had some of the uh, kinds of experiences of, of people in my book where they were uh, like Robert, you know, literally in a, a life or death situation and uh, felt something mysterious rescue them. And in fact, we call this phenomenon the mysterious stranger. Yes. Uh, because sometimes the, the angel does come in the form of a person uh, and they, they provide some uh, life saving or problem solving service and then they immediately disappear. Well, sometimes, as you point out in the book, uh, these mysterious strangers come to test our character. Uh, of course, there's an account in, uh, is it Genesis, about Abraham, uh, you know, who, who welcomes these strangers and uh, is very hospitable to them. Uh, there's a famous icon, actually, we have one hanging in our house about this, this encounter. Uh, but talk to me about uh, angels coming to test our character. You have a story in the book about that as well. Well, one of the stories I have, and it's it's such a sweet story, and uh, it involves a, a woman named Ruth who uh, didn't have very much money, and she uh, had to take care of her children. And uh, one day she was um, about to take her children out, and um, she sent them out to, to get in the car, and a man, a stranger, came to the door and uh, said he was hungry and he wanted some food. And um, she was you know, just kind of a bit distracted, didn't quite know what to do because she was one to leave with, with her kids, and she didn't have much food in the house at all. But she felt that she really had to help this man, and so she fix, fixed him a sandwich and a little bit of coffee with milk and uh, um, sent him on, on his way. And then she goes out to the car, and the kids are saying, well, what took you so long? Uh, and she said, well, I, I had to, to uh, fix some food for that man who came to the door. And they said, what man? Now, in order for the man to walk up to the, the front door of the house, he would have had to walk past the car with the kids in it that was sitting in the driveway. And they had not seen this, this man. Uh, and so Ruth was very perplexed because this man just kind of disappeared um, and uh, she thought that perhaps God had sent an angel to, to test her hospitality, um, test her kindness to a stranger, and her willingness to share what little she had in the pantry. Fascinating, fascinating. Uh, and, and I guess the lesson there is, you know, if, for those of us who, who believe in angels, and I certainly do, uh, is you never know when that... that uh, that mysterious stranger, it could be the person who's at the, uh, the traffic light as you're waiting to turn left, who's, uh, you know, he's got that sign, um, uh, you know, please help me, I'm hungry. 
uh, or you know the person who arrives at your door knocks on the door and needs to use your phone and uh, you're a little nervous and so forth we're, we have to be open to that possibility that we're constantly having our characters tested uh, perhaps by an angel have you ever found yourself in that position well, I think it does happen quite often, and yes, I've often been mindful of that myself when uh, I've been in situations where uh, someone who is a, a complete stranger has uh, asked me for something or, or needed assistance, and uh, y- you just never know. And, and in some cases, I think we will never know uh, whether that, uh, that individual was actually an angel but, um, you know, you mentioned the story of Abraham in the Old Testament, and that's really the prototype for entertaining strangers unaware, where the three angels come to Abraham and, and he sets a meal before them. He welcomes them with hospitality and sets a meal before them. And um, one of their messages is to, to tell uh, Abraham and his wife Sarah that they're going to have a child, even though uh, Sarah is well past childbearing age. And then two of them go off, and uh, this is one of the contradictions of angels and how impassive they can be in their duties to God. Uh, Here they are in this rather kindly mission to Abraham, and then two of them go off and uh, lay waste to Sodom and Gomorrah because God has decided those cities should be destroyed. Uh, And all in a day's work for an angel, I guess. (laughs) Indeed. All right, when we come back, we'll talk about the other world contacts of Eddie Burks as we discuss Angels with Rosemary Ellen Guiley right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley calling upon angels. Uh, before we get to the uh, uh, our friend Eddie here in the book and uh, his otherworldly contacts, uh, Eddie Burks, um, what are the uh, the signs? What what should we be on the lookout if? Uh, how can we recognize angels might may be near? Well, they will often uh, give us signs in the environment, and uh, the best way to to contact angels is through prayer and meditation every day, but quite often when we've asked for spiritual help, um, the answer doesn't come directly, it comes indirectly, and uh, so something that's meaningful to us, a synchronicity or a sign that has personal meaning to us in terms of our need is often a message from an angel and it could be something like uh, hearing a song over the radio at just the right moment uh, seeing a particular animal or bird uh, seeing a sign in the clouds uh, getting a certain um, letter uh, in in the mail or a card from someone many people get feathers that literally materialize in the air and um, I just a couple of months ago uh, interviewed a, a man who had a collection of several dozen feathers that he said had materialized uh, whenever he was praying for an answer to uh, to a question, and uh, he always took it as a sign that the angel realm is around him all the time. 
All right, we, we just got a few minutes here, but I want to at least start this discussion, and perhaps we can continue it uh, after the next break. But I want to talk about while you were traveling and researching in England, and you traveled to Surrey, which is a wonderful part of the country, uh, and you met this, um, well, I, I guess he's a medium, um, Eddie Burks. And uh, I guess you were sort of, how, how did you find Eddie, first of all? Uh, I found Eddie through the College of Psychic Studies in London, and uh, it was when I was working on my first angel book, and uh, I took a trip to England to do some research on a variety of topics, and I asked the college um, uh, who they would recommend uh, to speak on the topic of angels, and they directed me to Eddie. And uh, I struck up a friendship with Eddie that lasted for many years uh, until his death a few years ago. He lived in Lincoln, which was north of London, and he had had his own psychic and spiritual ability uh, open up later in life. He discovered that he had uh, quite a bit of healing um, ability, and he performed healing on people. He did spirit releasement, helping souls cross over to the other side. He did paranormal investigations, and he had contact with angels. And uh, so I spent quite a bit of time with him um, about his philosophy of the spirit realm and um, our relationship with angels. And I had uh, a very interesting experience with him that uh, I talk about in some detail in Calling Upon Angels. I asked him to contact the angel realm for me. Now, this was back um, when um, I still had a lot to develop in my own relationship with angels, and um, uh, I wanted him to contact the angel realm for me, and, and today I would just do it myself, but I, but I also wanted him to be a medium for me to get a message. And uh, so Eddie said that he had never attempted to directly contact the angel realm. He thought the energy was very intense, but uh, he would give it a try, and he went into... Uh, a, a light trance, the energy in the room changed quite dramatically. The temperature started to rise in the room, and I could feel almost like a pressure uh, building. And uh, then he began to channel a message for me, and uh, I took it down as dictation. And the message really has stayed with me my entire life because the angels told me that um, many people consider them to be more exalted and uh, spiritually higher uh, than human beings. And he said um, that they were no closer to God than humans. They just tread a different path. And I thought that was an interesting perspective. Uh, it certainly uh, puts us in uh, a different relationship with angels, I would say more on an equal footing, and perhaps the way it, that's the way it should be, that we have a role to play in the scheme of things that is just as important as angels. And uh, they also said that um, my work with angels was very purposeful and that I should not reduce them in any way to suit human understanding, that is not trivialize them, but rather I should work to raise human understanding uh, to better perceive angels. And uh, while I think that people have to find angels on their own level, uh, one of the things that I really have not liked in modern 
popular culture is what I feel is a trivialization of angels. Uh, these are exalted beings that uh, we often perceive of them in a human-like way, but they, they're beings of energy. I, I agree. I've I got to jump in, Rosemary. Sorry. We'll, we'll pick up on that point on the other side. That's true, the trivialization of angels. We'll discuss in a moment. Rosemary, uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley calling upon angels. Back with more in a moment here on The Conspiracy Show. The owners of the system are asleep. Now we can play. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. When considering the incredible offer on our 2016 Infinity QX50 luxury crossover, listen to that inner voice. Ooh, luxury. Sounds luxurious. Uh, yeah. With lease rates from 2.59% APR. That's a lot of numbers. I'm an English major. These are good numbers, inner voice. Like zero down and starting from $4.98 monthly for 48 months. Conditions apply. We should hang out more. Just visit infinitygtaretailers.ca for details. We know you love taking food pics, texting your BFFs, streaming your favorite artist's latest tunes, and playing with the hottest new apps. You can do all that and so much more with an iPhone 5S at $0 from Fido. Get the 16-gig iPhone 5S loaded with awesome features. Just $0 with a two-year agreement on a smart plan from Fido. An excellent phone at an excellent price. Get into a Fido store today. Limited time only. Conditions apply. Are you sure that's not a... A load-bearing wall? I I can fix that. Some projects should be left to Royal Home Improvements. Honey, when I say I want more natural light... I I can fix that. Royal Home Improvements has been building trust since 1969 and knows what it means to get the job done on time and within budget. Get your free home renovation estimate with just one call, inside or out, big or small. Do I even want to know? Yeah, it's okay. I, I can fix that. Call Royal Home Improvements because, no, he can't. The Royal Home Improvements project team can. Act now to start planning for your next project. With Royal Home Improvements, seniors never pay tax, and CARP members can save all or part of the tax. Call 416-236-4400 or visit royalhomeimprovements.ca. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal uh, investigator who joins us at this time every month. And uh, we are talking about a book uh, going back uh, to last year, Calling Upon Angels, available on her website, visionaryliving.com. Check out the bookstore. Um, Closing in now on what? Almost 70 books, isn't it, Rosemary? Uh, well, I'm probably ha- at least halfway there by now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now, the, um, the the point that we were we want to pick up on during uh, just before the break, we were talking about, or one of the things that concerned you is, and one of the messages that came through to you about uh, from the angels through Eddie Burks uh, was, uh, you know, not to trivialize angels to, to sort of make this your your work is to is to exalt them to help us to learn to understand. Um, that they need to be exalted and not trivialized. How do you think we trivialize angels? My feeling is that we've done it a lot in art. Uh, We've turned angels into um, too many cute little things. 
and like um, Cupid, like Cupid. Um, yeah, like the Cupid and um, cute little kitty angels, and um, maybe that's how some people find their way to angels as something that's very friendly uh, in in appearance, but they're not meant to be um, personal pets of people. Uh, They are exalted beings, and they did emphasize to me that uh, they uh, they bear the very essence of unconditional love. And uh, also that while they are available to help us and they must be asked for help, they're not here to solve all our problems. Um, They will provide guidance where they can, but uh, ultimately human beings do have to, um, to, to find their way. And that's often difficult for some people to understand because on one hand we have these stories of angels stepping in doing these dramatic rescues, and then angels are saying, well, you know, we're not here to solve your problems. We'll, we'll help you, but you have to solve your own problems. And um, my feeling on that is that we are given these dramatic demonstrations from time to time as uh, door openers and faith builders. Um, These are how some people uh, come to the realization that uh, angels exist and there are these higher forces that connect us to the source of all being. So perhaps we need these dramatic demonstrations then to bolster our own faith and Uh, turn increasingly uh, to uh, this intermediary spiritual help. I I think another way that we trivialize them uh, is uh, some people assume that uh, angels are, uh, you know, the spirits of uh, of loved ones that have passed on and then become our guardian angels, but they are a separate entity. They are, you know, created by God, but they are not human. and, and, but a lot of people seem to think, well, my grandfather is my guardian angel. He passed over, and now he's my angel. It doesn't work that way, does it? Uh, I believe not, Richard, and I do run into that uh, quite a bit. I'm often asked if the dead become angels, and my answer to that is they can be angel-like. Um, I do believe that, um, especially immediate family members like a parent or a grandparent, they do seem to take on a guardianship or protective kind of role with some people and I think it varies from family to family and certainly a lot of it would depend on a choice made by someone who has passed over but they're not angels they're they're still human souls uh, acting in ways that we would uh, compare to angels and uh, angels are distinctly different from human beings and um, uh, whether or not they are immortal nobody knows uh, in many accounts of, of angels, there are descriptions of angels who have finite lifespans, even just for, for a day. And there are stories of God destroying angels uh, who displease him. Uh, so um, uh, they, they definitely have a different kind of existence than we do. Do you believe in the idea of, uh, as, a, as outlined in the Bible, uh, the idea of fallen angels? Well, we certainly have uh, demonic uh, beings, and according to the Bible, that's how demons came into being, is that one-third of the heavenly host got kicked out uh, with Lucifer, or or opted to follow him when he fell to earth, and uh, that these fallen angels 
um, were condemned to roam the earth, and uh, then they uh, they began tormenting people. And we have many stories uh, outside of the Bible, and a lot of them from Judaic uh, mysticism, that uh, there are angels who weren't particularly friendly to human beings. And not just because God gave them instructions to warn or discipline or punish, but actively worked against human beings to keep human beings out of paradise. And uh, so we we have these concepts of um, angels uh, having varying opinions of human beings, not always being our friends and guardians and and protectors. And yet uh, I do think that human beings have developed into a relationship with the angelic realm where, where we are allied with those angels who are benevolent uh, and favorably disposed toward us. And uh, the ones that aren't uh, may find other ways to, uh, to interfere with us. And it is quite possible that, that the beings we call demons uh, came from the angelic realm. The uh, the modern day UFO uh, phenomenon and, and all that entails, including the alien abduction uh, phenomenon or close encounters uh, with with um, uh, ETs. Do you think that there that this may be understood in regards to the angelic realm? Uh, it's quite possible, and uh, I have had so many cases of um, people describing ET experiences that sound remarkably like angel experiences uh, that I have collected from other people and vice versa. And, uh, in fact, some years ago I did an informal experiment with uh, a psychologist in which we we took real accounts, people's um, anecdotal accounts um, of ETs and angels and, and took out the descriptors and then asked other people to identify uh, what the being was. And it's very subjective with the label that we put on our encounters with otherworldly beings. I think we attempt to identify and understand them as best we can. So we're going to draw upon our, our own background. And uh, recently, in the um, survey work that the Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial Encounters has done, and I'm on the Board of Directors and Research Committee. Yes, we talked about that last month, yes. uh, We we have asked that question whether or not people think that their ET experiences have to do with the afterlife and with angels and near-death experiences. And uh, many of the respondents said yes. Uh, they did, that they thought that there was some relationship. They weren't necessarily certain what the relationship was, but they uh, they thought that there was an interconnection there between uh, these kinds of, of beings and encounters. I, I'm increasingly coming to believe uh, believe that, that, uh, that the UFO uh, uh, phenomena and the abduction phenomena may best be understood um, through the angelic realm. Do you remember seeing the, the footage, uh, I'm not sure if it was, it was released by NASA, uh, but it, it, I think it was taken from the International Space Station, and it showed two unidentified aerial craft, and they looked like they were f- they were in- engaged in some sort of a, a, a modern-day dogfight, like, uh, you know, World War II fighter planes. It, and, and I'm wondering, do you think that in the, in the, in the heavens 
the fallen angels and uh, the other angels are engaged in some sort of battle. Well, in earlier centuries, uh, there were reports of people having visions of angel armies fighting in the sky. And uh, that would be the forces of light and darkness. And, and I think, uh, you know, uh, it's even forecast in the book of Revelation that there would be, uh, you know, the angels would um, marshal up their armies to uh, battle the forces of darkness. And um, in earlier times, um, mysterious lights in the sky were likely to be interpreted as angels. So... Um, it's uh, if you go back to all of these experiences, you can certainly see common ground from earlier centuries to even modern experiences, and we've just changed our terminology for how we interpret it. So, what's really going on? Have um, have we been visited by ETs all along, and we used to call them angels, or are they angels, and now we're calling them ETs, or is it a little bit of both? Can we even separate the two? Right. Well, you know what? It, it, it makes sense when you consider you have, um, with alien abduction uh, experiencers, you have a certain percentage of them who, who say it was a horrific, torturous uh, experience. Uh, they were absolutely uh, in fear for their lives. They were tortured. They were probed. They were uh, just, you know, horrific. Uh, and then you have the, the other uh, experience, which is, uh, you know, they, they felt sort of an unconditional love and they, they uh, you know, they were told to, uh, you know, to go out and, and try and help creation and, you know, the, the God is not pleased or the creator is not pleased with the, the, the state of the world and so forth. Uh, and I've always tried to, I've always struggled with these opposing views. But again, if we understand, as, as understand the experience in terms of the angelic realm, one encounter maybe with fallen angels and the other with the good guys. Well, it's quite likely, and I've always believed that there are multiple motives and agendas going on that, um, you know, human beings have no single purpose. Uh, we're not unified by any means, and and so uh, if you extrapolate that out to our encounters, we would have to be coming up against um, different agendas and, and motives with those beings as well. Absolutely. Just have about a minute left. Let's leave uh, on, on um, the point about guardian angels. If one wanted to find out who their guardian angel or angels were, how, how, do, how does one go about it? The best thing to do is to meditate and uh, to ask to be in contact uh, with uh, one's guardian angel for that angel to make itself known and to ask for a name. And the name does not have to be a biblical name. I've got examples in the book where um, more common names have been given. Uh, be aware of information that will come spontaneously into thought because angels will impress information on thought and to also a sense of, of presence around you. And um, and then also ask for signs. And uh, over over the course of time, if you keep at it, uh, you will get answers and uh, get some information about the angel, your guardian angel, and perhaps other angels around you. Can you share with us uh, the name of one of your guardian angels, or is that personal? Uh, well, one of them is Silver Lady, and uh, that's because that's what she looks like. Hmm. And uh, she doesn't have a personal name like we do, but... Her name is more of a descriptor, and uh, she 
was very instrumental in some of my major spiritual experiences uh, in the 1980s, and she's still around. Rosemary, I've enjoyed this immensely. It's, it's good to talk to you about angels. Well, thank you, Richard. I have, too. It's one of the most important connections human beings can make. Absolutely. Calling Upon Angels, and you can pick up a copy at VisionaryLiving.com. Until next time, Rosemary, thank you. Thank you, Richard. All right, that's it for us. We're about to dim the lights, but before we do, let me thank my intrepid uh, technical producer, Ian Robertson, uh, my story producer, Albert Vinzel, my intern, Jonathan Franz, who's also helpful. Uh, All of you for listening. Back next week with a brand new show. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.